It's ad break time. I'm proud to announce that the Beyond Solitaire podcast is sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. And as usual, they are up to some amazing things. Their next game, Hydrologic Cycle, is scheduled to come to Kickstarter on March 26th. CLGS also continues to offer classes in partnership with Gen Con. The next course, Classroom Game Design, Yes We Can, will be taught by one of my absolute favorite teacher gamers, Dr. Christiane Hintz. It begins on March 4th, and you should definitely sign up for it. I'll also include a final plug for myself. If you like the show and want to support it, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. Thanks to listeners like you, I've been able to keep upgrading my equipment, subscribing to StreamYard, and more. But for now, let's get on with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and this week on the podcast, I have a very special guest. This is Betsy Joslin, another Elizabeth. Fantastic. Uh, and she is a uh, professional war gamer at IDA. So Betsy, I know that you can't talk about all aspects of your job, but... Do you want to tell people the basics of your job? I can try. I can try my hardest. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a professional war gamer at IDA, which is pretty awesome. Um, I get to make games for a living that then no one ever really gets to see. But <laughs> it's still a wonderful process uh, working with a fantastic group of people. Uh, so a lot of what we do um, is coming together to work on, obviously, national security given topics to help design some sort of tabletop exercise or war gamers for our participants, which, you know, or come from a, a range of different Department of Defense entities uh, to help them examine problems from a different perspective, get them out of their biases, get them out of what they kind of know and think and talk about from day to day, um, and really try to get them to dig deeper and identify their own assumptions and beliefs when they've thought about these processes. Uh, and a lot of of the the goodness of professional war gaming comes from that alone. It's very very difficult to create professional war games where we're going to be able to solve problems moving forward or even predict the future. I wish I could say that's what we do in professional war gaming all the time, but that's that's absolutely not what takes place. A lot of it is just getting players out of their own heads, getting the right people in the room to talk to each other and say oh, wow, I never thought about it that way before. And to us, that's a huge win. So we're constantly working on on different ways, different angles and different perspectives to do that through wargaming. Um, but it can take a lot of different faces. So it's it's a really interesting job. That's awesome. Just So just to confirm, IDA is Institute for Defense Analyses? That is correct. So some people come at us to be like Institute for Defense Analysis. That is, that is not it. The C's, Institute for Defense Analyses. There's more than one analysis going on here, everyone. <laughs> There's <laughs> analysis for days. <laughs> so are y'all, you're, so you're basically like an independent company that does contract work for a number of different organizations. Is that so how we are? This uh, we are referred to as a federally funded research and development center or an FFRDC. Um, and the, what that really looks like is that we are an independent organization that has been statutorily mandated by Congress to work for the Department of Defense as uh, consultants or contractors, if you will. So I, when I try to explain it to people, I've said, you know, do you know companies like Deloitte? Do you know companies like Booz Allen? We're like them, except our sponsor, the client, and the individual that we work for is primarily the Department of Defense. Oh, that's awesome. So I know that you can't give too many specifics, but what types of range of topics can you cover as a professional wargamer? I think when people think about wargames in the hobby space, we're fighting still about whether you know, a historical conflict simulation of any kind can count, or is it only pew-pews on hexes? Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's not how y'all understand it at all. So when you're talking about professional wargaming, what does that entail? 
That's a great, that's a great question. There is a massive range to it. And it's actually pretty rare that I work on a, what we call a pew pew game. Um, I maybe the more, uh, the, the more serious they were as force on force games. Um, I don't work on those a lot, but it could range from anything from climate change, uh, to emerging technology. Uh, it could work a lot with, um, I'm trying to think of what I, what I can say that's in between that, but it's not uh, it's not necessarily about guys in camo running around or women in camo running around to see what they can do with their guns. It's a lot to do with if we look at this policy change, if we look at this new factor that's coming in that's eminent, like climate change. Um, how does it affect our logistics? How does it affect the movement of things, people to places? Um, and so that right now is primarily, I would say, what I've been focusing on. A lot of logistics games. Some climate change games, which have been really interesting. Um, merging technology games are very interesting right now. Uh, but again, those are a lot about not how does this tool operate in a scenario or in a you know in a time and a place with a person. It has a lot more to do with what are the assumptions and beliefs that this person is bringing to the table about this thing, and what are some challenges and opportunities that we should consider and think about when working with this thing in the future. So not necessarily about the thing. It's still very very much about the people. Nice. And then the games that IDA is making, are you making things that look like board games? Like there's pieces moving around the table or are you doing something that's more like, I think it's the seminar game, something that's like a model you in. Right, right. Where they're role playing. So like, again, different faces of games, right? I've absolutely been part of board games where we've got maps, incredible maps that we've been working with, pieces from, you know, 3D printers or ones that we've maybe purchased from outhouse, brought in and put stickers on. They're moving them around, they're rolling dice, there's cards involved, uh, but sometimes might look more like a seminar or what I refer to as a tabletop exercise where we've got um, a, a maybe a scenario or a situation and context that we're asking the participants to think about. And then we're using lots of structured analytic techniques to help draw out different perspectives um, and different opinions about, again, those beliefs and assumptions regarding the situation at hand. And a tabletop exercise is very different from a war game in that for us, a tabletop exercise is about drawing that discussion and, again, identifying those challenges and opportunities. And a war game has a little bit more of that adjudication to it. So you've made a decision, and then based off that decision, something else is going to happen. Uh, so for us, war games might be a little bit more involved, and I typically see those board game pieces with our war games, where a tabletop exercise might have a map involved, but it's much more about drawing out the right kind of discussion and conversation with the participants in the room than it is moving pieces and rolling dice. That's really interesting. So you've mentioned several times that part of your job is to offer different perspectives and to elicit productive discussion that maybe you can't predict the future or, you know, help people discover the exact right solution to a problem, but you can get them to think in a different way. How do y'all do that? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it, um, structured analytic techniques are actually a really great way to do that um, because it is intentionally finding a way to move you out of your bias, to get you out of the chair that you consistently think in and look at it from a different perspective. One of my favorite structured analytic techniques is called worst possible idea. I always joke and say I'm really, really good at that. Uh, but I will have someone come into a room and I'll say, here's, here's what we're doing. Um, let's say this policy was implemented and I'm going to tell you right now, like it's not going to work. Right. Or I want you to tell me what's the worst possible idea to get this policy done. What's the worst thing that you could think of in order to do this? Um, the other one, the other structured analytic technique that I was starting to hint at, is called postmortem, where it's like, 
what if I already told you this thing didn't fail? Tell me while it failed. And so we're getting people to answer problems, but we're getting them, I won't call it the long way, but a different way. We're making them work around the problem and answer questions they wouldn't typically think about. And then when all of that comes out and brought to the table, all of a sudden the participants start to see different things and the ripples that they've created. And we start to bucket different ideas and concepts. And next thing you know, there's like structured brainstorming that's gone on, or there's a new rare perspective that's been shared that nobody else considered. Um, and so in tabletop exercise specifically, I would say there's lots of opportunities to just get people outside of their bias, get people outside of their norm by asking those questions and leading them there through facilitation. So it sounds like this process is I mean, it's partially about being an expert. I know that y'all are researching the things that you're making games about, but it also sounds like the process that you're leading people through is actually what does the work. That it's not that you have to know more about this technology or, I don't know, a plague or whatever than everybody else in the room. It's that you have to know enough to be able to like get them to do the process that's going to take them somewhere. Is that... Absolutely. So the, they're the subject matter experts, right? I'm not the subject matter expert. We've pulled people from whether it's different units or different departments or different agencies, what have you, because they have that subject matter expertise. There's no way in the world they're going to come into the room and I'm going to tell them something that they don't already know. Uh, and for a good wargamer and a good facilitator, you're consistently working with a variety of different topics. So it'd be almost impossible for me to, to research both a mile wide and a mile deep on all of these different topics. Topics. But my job is to know what threads to pull at what time, if you will. Um, and so getting someone to say, you know, break that down for me. Why do you think that? I'm hearing you say this. I'm hearing you say that. How do we come to a point of divergence? How do we come to a point of consensus? And what steps can I take to kind of lead you through that walk? But you're the subject matter experts. So I'm not going to tell you, but I need to find a way to design this so that you'll tell me. Um, and then I'm going to hopefully be able to take all that data that you've given me and then show it, convey it, portray it back to you in a way that you don't typically view it. And so I didn't make this up. I am collecting the data that you gave me and I'm providing that objectable analysis that you've paid me to do. Um, and you might not like the answer, but I'm going to show that data back to you. And it is what it is. <laughs> That's really interesting. So we talk about trying to get a, a different perspective into, you know, confront biases. How do you know as the person who's choosing the questions and choosing what threads to pull and holding up the mirror that you're pulling the right threads, asking the right questions, holding up the non-distorted mirror or the one that has the right distortion? A lot of that is done in the prep phase for sure. Um, obviously, I'm going to have to do a little bit of research. Well, I'm surrounded by fantastic individuals at IDA usually who were like, Hey, I do know about this thing. So a lot of it is walking around to even the different divisions at IDA to say, I'm looking for a subject matter expert on this, who I can start talk to. I find out about who my audience is and what they need and what they already know. Um, I'm working with that subject matter expert, or I'm working with other individuals that I know through the network or the field to identify what are the hard questions that people are really contending with? What are the things that they already know? Um, at the end of the day, what's the one thing that everyone keeps coming back to? And how, how do I get away from that? Because we don't want to talk about the same old thing. We want to get that point of, of divergence, right? We want to go around that issue and get maybe to a different core. Um, so in the prep phase, that's really what's going to show me where I want to go, what I need to stay away from, what I need to be aware of in the room when people start leaning that way or they start talking about this or that. Um, I would say one of the issues 
that I consistently run into for TTXs or war games is if I'm trying to get us to think from a more creative perspective or a creative brainstorming activity to get us somewhere new. And if I have someone who's just like, no, doctrine says this, doctrine says this, doctrine, it's like, okay, that's someone that I need to help get out of that bias and move over here. What they're saying is still really important, but why do they keep coming back to it? They want to make sure that something's being conveyed here because either a past experience or because they're really scared that something very serious is being set aside and not taken into account when trying to be creative. And it's just going to make all of the efforts not worth it if we don't consider this thing. So let's find out what they're trying to put here. Let's make sure that's been represented. And then we need to move on. So knowing your audience, knowing what they need, um, knowing what they're looking for and knowing what they're not looking for is, is one of the ways that we can do that. And a lot of that um, comes through experience. And it's still something that I'm, I'm very much learning as someone who's been in professional wargaming for only three years. That's awesome. So how do you end up in professional wargaming? If I would known that that was a career path, I think I might have had a different life. <laughs> I I feel like whenever people ask me that, I, I say you know, I, I trip and fell into it. Um, and I don't really know anybody who was like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a professional war gamer. And then they go and do that thing. <laughs> I also, I had no idea it was a job. And when I found it out, I was like, cool, I'm going to be doing that now. Uh, so uh, I won't give you too much backstory here. It does have a little to do with my time in the Peace Corps. Um, so after college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I, I ran off and joined the Peace Corps. It was a fantastic opportunity for me. I came back. Um, I moved to Washington, D.C. because it's the mecca of, of Peace Corps volunteers and was really considering uh, exploring or pursuing a career with the State Department at the time. Um, I loved service. I, I come from a military family, so I knew that that was something that I wanted to continue to do. And I was uh, really encouraged to go to grad school. Uh, so I did. And I found an opportunity at American University. But the national security program that was being offered there that was eligible for the Coverdale Scholarship, which is a Peace Tour scholarship, was entitled Terrorism and Homeland Security Policy. Whoa. So that's technically what my my grad school degree is in, is it? Masters of Science in Terrorism. Um, so it, it's not that I wanted specifically to go and study terrorism. Um, it was it had much more with I wanted to do a national security master's. Um, and I also wanted to utilize and leverage my Peace Corps experience as much as I could. And so I did get the Coverdale Scholarship, which was great, got to attend. Uh, but once I got there, I found out that a lot of my peers were highly interested in using this degree to join the intelligence community. Um, and it was at that point I found out that my time in Peace Corps actually uh, not, not banned me, but was a challenge with that. There's usually like, like a five to seven, sometimes 10 year uh, kind of gap that they ask between my time in Peace Corps and joining the intelligence community. So I was wrapping up my uh, my master's and was like, wow, I really don't know what I'm going to do now because I'm not going to apply to any of those places. Um, and one of my professors had reached out and said, I'm thinking about reaching out uh, to this company. They do um, board gaming online. And this was during COVID. So she was like, do you guys think that I should incorporate this into the curriculum? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes please <laughs> like that sounds like so much fun i've been doing 
you know, hobby wargaming, commercial wargaming since I was born. My family is, is just obsessed with that. Um, and I was born and raised in that community. And I was like, this sounds like so much fun. I want to do that. What do you mean this is like a professional thing that people do? Um, and so through that opportunity, I got exposed to it as a field. And then I was like, whatever, whatever I do in life, I'm, I'm willing to do that. And I actually quit uh, a GS position that I had at the time to take a 60% pay cut, pay cut to go work as a wargaming intern for someone. And then that opportunity um, led me to IDA eventually, which was absolutely fantastic. And I'm, I'm so glad I made that jump because it's, it's really been worth it. So it sounds like gaming kind of sparked an interest in you once you discovered that was like a thing that you yeah. can do. Does that have any roots in your um, in your earlier life? Like, have you always been a gamer who just found out that you could do that professionally? Or did you get into games because you became a professional war gamer? Oh, God, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, I, I don't know. I will say there's obviously a, a pretty big difference between professional war gaming and commercial war gaming. Um, and when I heard about professional war gaming, I actually, you know, at that point in my time, I didn't really know the, the true difference between them. I was like, gaming, where I get paid shut up and take my money. Like I'm 100% going to do that. And now that I'm in it, I'm like, they, they, they are a little more distinct than I thought they were. I still love what I do because it takes creativity. Um, and it really requires that diversity of thought in order to create more rigorous games. Um, and so you don't have to come into the field with a background or knowledge in commercial gaming. It helps, I would say from some perspective. Um, mm -hmm. and, we were kind of talking about this earlier, but I, I have a lot of peers, female peers specifically, who want nothing to do with commercial wargaming. And they're really, really big advocates of you do not have to be a hobby wargamer to work in this field. And they're absolutely right. Um, and I and I, I agree with them. I would say, however, that exposing myself to more mechanics on the commercial side really, really helps the way that I look at designing professional war games when thinking about the variety of different mechanics at hand. Um, one of the biggest differences I think about, eh, maybe it's not the biggest difference, it's a difference about professional war gaming and commercial war gaming is that we will incorporate things into professional war gaming um, that have no impact on the game itself. So we might be looking at if um, you're representing a, a, a some sort of regime, we're looking at regime stability. Is it unstable? Is it stable? And I might have something in the game that impacts that track, but just right. because your regime is unstable actually doesn't have any other, it doesn't work backwards into the game. With commercial wargaming, everything is tied to each other. Because of this, you can now do this or you can't do this, which means you have to go here. And professional wargaming, we might create that illusion or that allure, um, but it's supposed to help, it's, it's be there, it's there to help drive discussion and conversation. It's not necessarily there as like, I don't have to do this statistical mechanic balance that might be more required in a commercial game. But knowing that those mechanics exist really helps me when thinking about how to convey or portray different information on the professional side. So my commercial background, I think, helps my professional one. Not having a commercial background is is fine. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't hurt you at all in professional wargaming. Um, so again, long long winded answer to your question, but I'm really glad I have the background in gaming. I don't think it's quite necessary though. Interesting. So you mentioned different mechanisms, and you also kind of we've been talking about getting at really complex topics where you have subject matter experts come in and you're trying to push them, you know, to these different places through a game. How complicated? can those games be and still have utility 
for your clients. This like, is something that we talk about a lot, actually, in professional wargaming, because some of the most amazing professional wargamers that I know also come from a very uh, complicated, complex commercial wargaming background, and they can't help but sometimes bring that to the table. Um, at the same time, we're also trying to reflect reality. We're trying to create schemas and relationships as it exists in the real world, because if you don't, you know, we're creating an opportunity for negative learning, which is absolutely something we want to stay away from. Um, because of that, some of these professional word games can get really, really complicated. And we consistently forget that our players who are coming to the table to learn don't usually have a commercial background. And I have seen games where it struggled a little bit and we'll get there, you know, we absolutely always get there. But when we do that turn zero, it's usually on the first day of the game itself. We want to take aside a whole eight hours if we can to just explain to them the game, explain to them the rules, explain to them how to play so that we can hit the ground running the next day. Um, and I've seen a game where it took all eight hours to get people there and it was really pulling teeth. And even at the end of it, they were like, you know, um, I don't really know how this works. I'm going to tell you what I want to do. And if you could just show me how that happens in game form, that would be great. And it's like, cool, we can work with that. And then I've seen other games that were still complicated, but the facilitation and the explanation went so smoothly that within two hours, players were like, great, it, we've got it, we're good. And like, they just crushed it. And it was, it was fantastic. Um, so I've seen both. But I think that as a community, we should continue to remember that a lot of these players don't have that background. And even when we're looking at either our facilitation or explanation or writing of rule books or even just designing the game in general, we might need to take a step back sometimes. Um, we don't want to misrepresent information, but we want to make sure that we're conveying it in a very simple, straightforward way so that people can actually play, so that we can actually gather data, so that we can make analysis on the findings of the game. So when you are gathering data and doing your analysis, what does the data look like? Is it something that's sort of narrative? Um, do you tell people, oh, people took this action X number of times? Or like, this is statistically, you know, I mean, I, you, is it numbers data or is it observational data? And then how do you choose what gets presented to the client? That's that's a great question. We could talk about this for just like the, the rest of the podcast if you want. So cut me <laughs> off when I'm when I'm talking too much. Um, but it is both. Some of it's going to be numerical data and some of it's going to be observational. Um, typically, when we have note takers come in to help us out in these scenarios, we might even split them up and say, you know, this group, I want you to take notes specifically on the actions that are taking place in the game. What player played what at what time? And maybe you could even ask them a little bit of, you know, why and maybe talk to them one on one so they can give you their reasoning behind that action. And then maybe another group of note takers are maybe taking a step back and looking at a much larger picture and saying, you know, what's the body temperature of the room? What teams are talking to others or refusing to work with others? Maybe I can walk around and get um, a, a bigger picture, a big picture idea of what's going on with the game and, and how people are playing and approaching the game itself. So that means at the end of the game, though, I've got miniature, minute, like lots and lots of data on, on a very, very small piece of the pie. And then I've got some people who give me a much bigger slice of the pie. Um, and it's my job to kind of take all of that information together and identify, all right, what are our highlights? What was emphasized? What are the big takeaways here? 
Um, so usually after a war game is done, we'll try to do what we call a quick look, uh, which is a quicker turnaround for the sponsor to say, this is, you know, this is not our analysis yet. This is just stepping back, taking a big look picture at what happened. Here's what we're, here's what we're seeing, you know, here's what some of the data might suggest, but it's going to take a deeper dive. And then we do that deeper dive and that deeper dive can take anywhere from three, four months, sometimes maybe even a little bit longer. And we want to convey to the sponsor, here's what happened in the game. Cut and paste, black and white. These are the things that happened. And then we want to be able to step forward and say, and here's why they happened. And this is where we're looking at both the participant data, what they were feeling, the rationale, the reasoning behind it, what that highlights again about beliefs and assumptions about some of the decisions being made. Um, we'll look at kind of a pre and post test almost of before the game, what were they thinking about the scenario and the actions they wanted to take after those actions were had taken place and they saw how it was adjudicated, did it change how they thought about that scenario or not? We collect all of that information. We try to bucket them. Again, if I've had multiple participants saying the same thing, maybe that's a higher highlight. If I had an anomaly happen, if I had like a side piece thing that happened, I want to make sure I call that out. I want to spend also a good part of my report saying, these are the things that were not considered. These are the things that we did not take into account when looking at this game. So when you look at our findings, right, um, we don't usually make recommendations, but when you look at our findings, you need to look at them within this vacuum. We didn't consider that there could be a tsunami that happened out of nowhere and changed everyone's priorities, right? So we we make a, a list of called constraints, limitations, and assumptions so that the sponsor absolutely understands the things that were within and without a scope of this project um, and the things that also help framed why we looked at it the way that we do. So before the game is even really developed, we'll work with the sponsor to develop something called essential questions. Um, and that, again, is where we highlight from the very beginning, before we're even working on prototypes of the game, what kinds of questions are most serious, or um, maybe that's not the best way to say it, are most important to the sponsor. And then we're going to build in mechanics, and then we're going to build in uh, a game design that addresses those questions. So at the end of the day, if you're like, what about this? It's like, well, that wasn't one of the essential questions that we discussed together. So that's not something the game took into account, and that's not something the game was even designed to capture. So that doesn't mean it's not relevant. That doesn't mean it's not important. But the game wasn't designed to look at that. So if that's something that you're interested in, then let's look at the way to modify the game, mend the game, maybe make a new game that does answer that question for you. And then we can collect data in that way. So I have seen game reports that are 250 pages long. Um, I have seen some that are 20 pages long. Uh, the, the longer it is, the less likely it is to be read. So I'm a big fan of, you know, tightening it down as much as we can um, and getting that bluff out there for our participants, uh, for, our, for our sponsors. But that can be hard when you're working on on a very complicated game. So we, we, we do our best. <laughs> we do what we can. So do the same people who collect the data, are they the same people who also were there for the essential questions phase and who designed the game and who... Not always. Uh, led the game, or do you change like staff to handle different parts? And I guess how does that impact the kind of data that gets collected? Or y'all, do you feel that you train people so that the data is consistent regardless? That is, I think, something um, that we are still working on is building a, a consistency of training for our note takers. Um, 
I think the the Wargaming team at Ida is a fantastic team, but we've got a lot of demand right now. Um, and often I will need someone with more experience to help me facilitate or be a white cell adjudicator for a game. But that means I have less people to be note takers. So I'll have to pull from maybe other departments or divisions and ask for their help. But that means these individuals are coming in. They might have only had one exposure to the game before. Um, in some worst case scenarios, if someone gets sick last minute, I'm pulling someone who's never seen the game before to come and do note taking, which can be a real challenge. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, but we are really starting to build a core group of individuals at IDA, not just at uh, the Joint Advanced Warfighting Division, which is what I'm at, but other divisions as well, who we can consistently draw on to help us with these events. And the more that we have these individuals help us out, we're seeing a lot more consistency um, and, and stability and rigor in the notes that are taken, which has been super, super fantastic. Um, still, you know, from beginning to end, having the same team can be very, very difficult. Again, whether um, we start off with a core team and the new projects come in and someone has to be taken away from that project due to other priorities. Um, other people get sick, uh, items like that. that. That kind of stuff happens. And so it's it's pretty rare that you'll have a single team of the same individuals who are there for the essential questions, who are there for the design and the development, who are there for the game itself, who are there to analyze the data and who are there to write the report. Um, I, I got brought in to help facilitate a game uh, with, I think, about three weeks notice. Uh, and again, the game designer did such a fantastic job that I was able to just capture the game really, really easily. I ended up facilitating it no problem, and that has a lot to do with the designer. But now I'm here helping develop the report because I was there, um, and I got to talk to, obviously, a lot of the participants, and I got a feeling for the room as I was adjudicating. So I have data that I want to contribute. And unfortunately, some of the individuals who were there to help with the report have now been drawn away for their priorities on other projects. So that kind of stuff does typically happen. But again, um, there's a lot of trust, which is pretty pretty fantastic. Um, and when you, when you start off with good prep work at the beginning, when those essential questions were done with the sponsor, when there was thorough work to, to kind of lay out what was in scope, out of scope, what were the constraints, limitations, and assumptions, and when you've got really clear, straightforward design and, and rulebook writing, it just helps everything else down the line. And, and then you can to situations where you're pulling me in with three weeks' notice, and the game just went absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm going to give a shout-out to, to Cameron Swan. He was a designer for that game. He did just, a, just such a great job. That's awesome. That's awesome. So a question, you, you established essential questions and kind of client priorities at the beginning, but how often do the best insights that they have from more games line up with the questions they thought they were asking at the beginning? I would say rarely. And that's part of our job. Um, we're going to get a lot of individuals who come in and say, this is the problem. And they're not wrong. But sometimes we just say, hey, you, you laid out a problem, but it's a massive one. And uh, we might not have the time or the resources to adequately capture all of that. So A, some things we can do. We can look at just this piece of the puzzle, or we can back this up and we can actually do some sort of workshop or, or a tabletop exercise, or even just an internal discussion to say, well, what's the problem that caused that problem? Maybe we need to back it up some more. Maybe we need to zoom in some more. Um, and I would say very consistently when we start to develop the essential questions with a sponsor, they'll start to see it from a different angle and they'll understand, I can't do it all, but this we can do. 
And these are the top line questions that I, I care the most about in bulleted form and a much more digestible and approachable form. Um, and it's really, really great to work with sponsors who are open to saying, I have a question and I understand that that question may change based on our discussion. And that is really what our job is, is to help the sponsor get there. Um, but there's absolutely been times when they've come in and they say, this is our problem. And we do all of that work and analysis and breaking down and we go, you know what? We 100% agree. That is the problem. And, and we're going to move forward with that. So it's all about having a, a trust and good relationship with our sponsors, which we are so far I've been blessed to do. I, I love the sponsors that I work with. They've been fantastic. So hopefully that that continues in the future. <laughs> so you clearly really enjoy your work at Ida, but you also um, have a gaming design and publishing life beyond that. So what are you doing outside of work that's related to games, both in terms of publishing that you're doing, which I think sounds really cool, uh, and games that you're designing? Yeah, I feel I feel like I'm doing I'm doing a lot. I'm trying. I'm I'm really kicking a few things off. I feel like I've got a lot of irons in the fire, but all of it is still in development. Um, and something that I really didn't know before, especially in commercial war gaming, it could take me years to develop a game. Um, especially if the the game just isn't where I want it to be and I know it can be better. Uh, but even sometimes just balancing my personal life and my professional life and the things that I want to do in commercial gaming outside of that, some things just have to be put on the back burner. And because there's no you know imminent deadline and because no one's pushing me for those things to get done, they can afford to wait a little bit. And so that happens a lot. Um, but right now, I, so I am a... Wargaming instructor for the Moore's Wargaming course, which I absolutely love doing. I am the head of programming for the Women's Wargaming Network, and I am the co-chair for Connections Next Generation. Um, I've also, for the last two years, been presenting for Connections US and Connections UK, uh, which has been a fantastic opportunity. And I recently just accepted a position at Johns Hopkins University. I will be teaching a wargaming course next fall uh, on Wargaming 101, essentially, for some grad students, which I'm really looking forward to. So these different kind of networks that I've been part of have really, really helped me um, kind of get opportunities to do new things. Uh, so I'm about to publish an article with Andrew Olson from CNA on training wargamers. Uh, specifically, we're looking at what we call journeymen who are wargamers who have had their foot in the door, have some more than maybe entry-level experience in professional wargaming, but aren't considered um, very, very experienced yet. And Andrew and I put ourselves in this scenario where we've been in wargaming for three or four years, three to five years, uh, but we would not consider ourselves like experts on any, like if you gave me any topic um, that had to be in any format, right? I might struggle with that. There's some topics I know better than others and some formats of wargaming that I know better than others. Uh, so how can we sharpen our skills? So that's something that um, I'm been working on really hard with him and we're looking forward to getting that out soon. I also just finished a piece with Stephanie Game, who's the other co-chair from Connections Next Gen. Uh, we are looking to submit that piece to a journal soon, so I'm sure that will still take some time because it needs to be peer-reviewed, uh, but it's on rule books, and we're really, really excited about that. Um, it's based off some of the presentations that we developed and presented at Connections US and Connections UK, so um, get excited for that because eventually it will come out and it will be awesome. Yeah, can we get just uh, a little spoiler about like what are some of your overall conclusions about rule books? 
I'm just oh my gosh, you're gonna get me on another rant. Um, so we we were just looking at the next generation and the way that we convey information and the different ways that the next generation is actually absorbing that information, um, and kind of looking at rule books of the past, maybe rule books from the '70s uh, to rule books of the '90s, and then the rule books of the future. And what are things that we can take with us? We're we're living in such a great time where commercial wargaming commercial gaming in general is really expanding and we're getting like a whole new group of individuals who have not been exposed to gaming before who are super interested and want to come to the game table which we're all for especially women which i'm really really excited about however the way that we used to convey information might not be most appropriate for now but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some really, really good things that came from those war games, especially the storytelling aspect. I remember growing up, my my father and my brothers, when they got a new game at Christmas, the first thing they would do was open the rule book and read it like a book. It was read <laughs> like it was like it was a page turner. People don't do that anymore. I recently played a, a cute little game. I think it was um, poetry for Neanderthals. You know, just something cute and silly with my boyfriend. And when I opened up the rule book, one of the first things it said was, don't read the rule book. This is the worst way to learn rules. Go to this YouTube link and check it out, right? Um, so just <laughs> looking at the different ways that we have traditionally shared information, um, looking at what Settlers of Catan did with building an almanac versus building, you know, a quick look reference guide to how to play the game versus looking at, well, here's the designer's background and the designer's story that they want to share all in separate booklets. Um, why did they do it that way? What are the pros and cons of conveying information in a different way? And as we move forward, what are some better ways that we can convey information to the next generation? So it's it's a lot. It's like 22 pages. <laughs> I can't wait to read that, honestly. I'm super excited. Like as a teacher, I'm always thinking too, like generationally what works and what do people, how do people respond now? I think about that as somebody who writes and now edits rule books. Um, oh my gosh. That's, that's I, awesome. I actually really like writing rule books. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan too of making sure if I can, and obviously this is, this is a luxury, not people can afford this, but if you can make it so that the designer of the game isn't writing the rule books, um, I really prefer that I'm, I'm helping, uh, with one of my peers at work right now, we're writing a rule book for a professional war game that we did because the sponsor wants a more off the shelf version of the game. Um, and I'm a big fan of being like, let me do what I can because you are elbows deep in this, my friend. Um, and I've heard you convey information and I've seen people look at you just like super confused and you're like, how could you not understand this? And it's because you, I've just like, you're, you're, you're so passionate about what you do, but you've been the only person looking at this for months. And though you're not even thinking about the considerations or questions that people who haven't seen this at all are bound to ask. Um, so if you can get someone to play test your rule books, like, that's that not again, not everyone has that luxury, not everyone has that time. Um, but I I've recently started doing more rule book writing uh, at work and even outside of work a little bit. And it's it's a lot of fun. It's super challenging, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I got really lucky because um David and I had wonderful playtesters for Night Witches who asked great questions about the rule book and definitely helped me make it better. So that's yeah, fantastic. Play- playtesters like the unsung heroes without whom games would not be nearly as good yeah and, and <laughs> unfortunately too for the designer because of time and resources the the rule book is often put until like last minute or it's the last thing we have to do um and it might be even the thing that's stopping you from getting this game out there and you're like i just want it done 
Uh, and there's there's a bias there that you got to be careful of. Um, yeah. And there's a few rule books that I've read that I absolutely wish would be rewritten. Um, I'm not going to name what they are. I know I know one right it. now. <laughs> <laughs> I know one right now that I wanted to be rewritten, and it is getting rewritten, which I'm really excited about. Um, and it's it's just a great game. The rule book is just not where it could be, um, and it's not because it's bad. It's just like it's just a little too ambiguous. And when you create rule books that allow or permit different interpretations of the game, you're not playing it the way the designer deemed, uh, which can be super dangerous, especially for professional wargaming, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that piece coming out. I think it's going to be good. I think it'll be well-received. So stay tuned for that. Um, yes. I did also recently uh, finish designing a game with Sebastian Bay for the Naval War College, Horns of a Dilemma, um, which is on ethics and leadership in the military. Uh, really, really cool experience. And I think what was so rewarding about that um, was that it's actually a very simple game. It's nothing crazy. It's no, it's no littoral commander. Okay, like it's <laughs> it's a, it's a card driven game. Um, and it's really a game like most ethical games. It is meant to uh, present you with opportunities for much further deliberation and discussion than is presented in the game itself. Um, it's that, you know, that game table talk that really makes the magic of the game come together. Despite the fact that it's so simple, so many so much of the feedback that we got from the from our play testers was like nothing like this had been done in this arena before. And it was really bringing to the table rich conversation that they were like, this kind of conversation is something that we usually have to pull teeth to get. Or again, we have to think of very different creative ways in teaching in order to get our students to this point. But you were able to create a card-driven game that can do that and create off the bat um, very rich and rewarding conversations about very realistic and serious events. And that was so rewarding to hear that even though it was a simple game, we didn't do anything crazy. It had, we had done something that people hadn't experienced or explored before in this arena. Um, so we're contributing to the field and I, and I absolutely love that. So, um, well, I'm very excited to see where that goes as well. Naval War College is still playtesting it with their students currently. So, um, I think in the spring, we're going to get some more feedback from them, um, but they love where the product is headed. And that's been absolutely awesome for us. So I'm glad that that effort has been checked for now. Um, I don't know if it's done just yet. Um, I'm trying to think. I just finished designing a micro game Ooh. called Medic. Yeah, it's fun. So IDA has actually uh, put together a, a IDA micro game project, which we're calling IMP. Um, and it is being led by Akar Bardvaj and myself. Uh, and we are just walking a few IDA employees. And this is, um, we're doing it at IDA, but it is being done outside of IDA working hours um, on our own computers and our own resources. We're just walking them through how to design a micro game, which is something I'm really passionate about and is actually the topic that I instruct for the Moore's Wargaming course. Um, and so through that process, even though I'm teaching others how to do a micro game, of course, I had to design one of my own for fun. So it is a, a cute little game that is on triage ethics, combat triage ethics. So once our little project is done, because this was done in our, in our free time and because we didn't use IDA resources, we are going to be able to publish them as individuals. So that will probably go out sometime in the spring. Um, I might have a few more people play test it, but it's in a really good position right now. So I'm happy with that. 
And then I am involved in the Zenobia competition right now. So what? me too. What? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so working, working hard on that. Um, and, and happy to talk about that if you want me to, but, um, it's very much a, a, uh, in working progress so yeah no, um, i'm gonna leave that because i know you're mid competition and i'm mid like reading proposals so we're just gonna like not worry about that <laughs> part of our life that. right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's been awesome and I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes as well so a few different irons in the fire but i always feel like there's some more that i could do and now that i'm wrapping up two articles and i've finished my micro game i'm like i gotta do something else but maybe yes. maybe i should just read a book and relax so we'll see what i do that's what my thing therapist tells me but do i know <laughs> um right. so uh, one more real question before i kind of ask something fun which is i've noticed that both of the games you've talked about are about ethics in difficult situations ethics of leadership ethics as a medic what draws you to ethical topics and how do you feel that they can best be drawn out in board game form Man, so I've been waiting for someone to ask me this um, because <laughs> I'm, I, <laughs> I'm not. Th thank you for asking me this. I should have prepared a better answer. Um, as of late, I have really been interested a lot more in ethical games. Um, and I think one of the reasons they might not be done too much is obviously they can be incredibly sensitive. Um, and the last thing you ever want to do is create an ethical game that looks to measure or assess the ethicalness of the players. Like that's that's something we want to stay away from. Right. Um, however, it's totally worth talking about hard and difficult situations and kind of exploring um, the different varieties of ethics that exist. My ethics might be different than your ethics, but that doesn't necessarily mean that mine is right or yours is wrong. It could or it could not. And just because we have different forms of ethics doesn't make one of us more ethical than the other. And so finding um, safer areas with still important and, and potentially sensitive topics um, I think is really, really important, interesting, and unique to do in wargaming. Um, so you got to be careful about it, but I do think there are ways to do it. Um, I think whenever I have thought about wargaming, when I first came into professional wargaming, I always said that I wanted to create, you know, like a Kobayashi Maru situation. <laughs> and I, I always love that idea because it's not necessarily about the end result. It was about how you maybe held yourself or mitigated the situation that you were in. And that was the data, you will, that we would be collecting rather than who won or who lost. Um, it's, you know, how do you deal with certain deaths, you know, when facing it type thing. So I kind of want to bring that same energy, if you will, when looking at these ethical games where they're not about winning, they're not about losing, but it is going to create some questions that you have for yourself and even discussions that you want to have with other people. So for the medic game, for instance, um, you are playing the medic. An explosion has gone off, and I've, I've created some variability in the game so that you, it could be different in different locations. But before the explosion even goes off, you've got these four little figurines of um, individuals that could be in your unit. And I ask you to name them using your family uh, or your friends before even anything's happened. And then you place them in these different zones. And then I have two different shapes uh, for individuals that might be locals. And I've, I've made them not look like human silhouettes. They're just a symbol, right? And again, that's a discussion in the game. If we dehumanize individuals that we are not necessarily consider ourselves close to, does that change how we might approach that situation? Ooh. Um, 
So then after you've placed these individuals, then you roll die to see, you know, where the explosion goes off. And that kind of lists out for you who's in what area of hurt, whether it's a green zone, a yellow zone, or a red zone. Um, and then you've got limited time. Um, usually in, in terms of mortuary affairs, we look at it as the golden hour, where you really have one hour to get to someone to assess them, to apply, you know, triage, if you will, uh, potentially treat. And then hopefully a medevac unit will be there at that time or a CASVAC unit, if you will, to then get them to the next level of care. Uh, in this game, I've given you two hours and each kind of action that you do takes up certain amounts of time. Um, but the way that I've done it is that you have limited time and you have limited resources to treat. So it's all about who do you go to first? Why do you go to that person? If they're really, really hurting in a bad place, are you going to choose to leave them and give care to somebody else that you could potentially save? What if you do save someone that was on the brink of death? What does a quality of life look like afterwards? And so it's it's just to draw out these different kinds of questions. And again, there's no winning or losing. But at the end of the game, um, I don't know if you ever played that peg game at Crackle Barrel. Oh, yeah. The so one to, where it's like, you're a, you're a genius. You're nincompoop. <laughs> no Ramus. Exactly. But based on the number of, of pegs that you get is like you're this kind of you know, like a little narrative about how you're doing. And I did the same thing where you tally up points based off of what the end result is. Um, and so you're trying to beat yourself, if you will. And you want to go back and do the game differently to see if you can get a little different narrative for yourself. Um, but even at the end of the day, like, again, if you save someone who's on the brink of death and they're like, okay, well, they have no limbs and they're now a vegetable. Um, but someone who was maybe in the green zone who you ignored because you thought they were fine and they died because you didn't get to them close enough or you didn't have enough resources to help them out, you know, let's let's discuss about what you think about the scenario. You could be very fine with that. You could be like, I did what I could with what I had and I have no regrets. And it's like, understood, right? But let's have that discussion. And now would you want to look at it from a different perspective? Would you like to make a different approach? And so it's a, it's a solo game. Um, you're playing it against yourself. Good. I, like and I, I love me. I love me a solitaire game. <laughs> um, so it's, it's again, just there. It's not to assess if you're ethical or not, but again, the situation that I gave you is one that you're never going to be able to save everybody. You don't have enough time and you don't have enough resources. So it's a little bit of that Kobayashi Maru. It's not about winning or losing. It's about how you handle the situation, how you feel about it when you do it. Are you okay with decisions that you made? Are you not okay? Being not okay with the situation is totally an acceptable response. Let's talk about that. Um, and so hopefully that's what the game's going to do. But even in the game, I've set up um, a section for th these are questions to ask yourself. These are questions maybe even to discuss with another person. And that's where a lot of the meat comes out of these games. So ethical games might be pretty quick in terms of mechanics, but I'm really hoping that the nature of these games draws out a lot more uh, serious and, and rewarding discussions. So we'll see if I make some more of them, but they've been, um, they've been eye-opening to work with thus far. And I'm going to keep exploring them for as long as I can, I think. Oh man, I want to play this now. So we're we're gonna talk after the show. Uh, but for now, um, just really quick, uh, what what games have you been playing for fun recently? So we've talked about brutal situation games, but what's been bringing you some joy as a player? Oh my gosh! So I I will say that when you play games all day, and I don't do it every day, but there's absolutely some days where I come into work and I'm like, we're doing eight hours of wargaming today. I'm either play testing or helping development. Um, and those are fun days, but those are pretty exhausting days. 
Um, and I am very blessed to have a partner who wants to play games as well. So when I come home, he's like, you want to play games? And I'm like, uh, I would like a nap. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been looking for games that, um, give my brain a break, if you will. Um, last night I, I played wingspan again. I haven't played wingspan in a few months and it was so much fun to just be like, this is light. The art is fantastic. You know, the game takes what, 40 minutes, maybe it was quick, it was easy. It was fun. Um, that was great. But I think tonight we're going to be playing Shores of Triple E, which is like maybe a little bit more serious, but still fun, quick, easy, simple two player game. Um, my dad has an epic collection of, of board games, but they're of an older time, if you will. So <laughs> whenever I'm home, I kind of use it as a library experience and I'll check out a game and then I'll return it and check out another. And I recently uh, borrowed his uh, Lord of the Rings game. And I also, because I've been sick for the last week, uh, purchased all the extended versions of Lord of the Rings and just watched them all. So now I kind of want to play that game. Um <laughs> My my favorite forever and for always, right, is Scythe. I just love Scythe so much. Um, it's it's hard to find people who want to play it with me because <laughs> they open up the box and they're like, this looks complicated. And it's just not as complicated as it looks. Um, so sometimes I will play that game online through Steam instead because I can't find it. It's just one of those games that's a lot better with three or four people. It's still fun with two. But um, it, it gets more enriching with more people. So I play that on Steam from time to time. Um, I also recently just checked out from my dad's gaming library, NO1503, which was like one of my favorite games when I was a teenager. So I'm excited to play that game again as well. Um, so now I'm just spewing off games that I've played. But... No, it's fantastic. You know, you gotta, if you're making games, I believe in a healthy gaming diet. Sounds like. It's, yeah, it's I like that. I like that. I like that. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I took a break, I think, from gaming for a while. Um, there was a, a certain point where I was just doing too much and it was becoming, it was, it was a little uh, exhausting. And I had a game night with some friends and it was like, we were just, you know, Drinking, drinking some beer and having some game appropriate snacks, which is pretzels, and <laughs> don't don't want any residue on the fingers kind of game snacks. And it was so fun and it was so lighthearted. And I was like, this is what I miss. Like, it doesn't always have to be serious. It doesn't always have to be about, man, I got to make sure I'm collecting data so that I can analyze these findings later. <laughs> but like, well, lighthearted. You don't data your friends do. <laughs> I mean, maybe I should start. That would be like a that would be a fun blog to be like I've analyzed my friends and I's game nights and here's what I'm finding. <laughs> um, but yeah, the it's all about playing when you want to play, right? When you're when you're in the right mindset and then getting together with some good folks, um, which again is a luxury. Not not everyone has that when they want to have that, but I've got some, some pretty awesome friends who are always down to play games, which helps. Beautiful. And if people want to follow your work online, where can you be found? So I'm on Twitter. I have the weirdest Twitter handle of all times. It's not my fault. I can explain it. Okay. Uh, back when I I was working, uh, doing some wargaming research for a company, and I a lot of it was like I had to look up real people on Twitter to kind of see what their, their tone of voice was when they were tweeting because I was helping – this is before JetGPT – I was helping generate um, – tweets to build a narrative game uh so i got myself a twitter for research purposes only 
And I obviously have seen uh, 1983 war games. So I made a Twitter handle called Whopper underscore GTW 1983. <laughs> so anyone who knows the movie war games gets it. But anyone who doesn't know that thinks that I'm bot. So that's my Twitter handle. I have not changed it. It's still that. Um, I, I only tweet about wargaming essentially um and i feel like i need to do more of it sometimes but when i when i'm out there gaming i'm trying to take photos of it as much as i can if i'm in an area where i can um i'm on linkedin i i'm on facebook i'm not on instagram sorry guys i that, that's a long story i got locked out of my account can't figure a way to get back in so <laughs> i'll figure it out one day um but a super easy way to get a hold of me is through linkedin and twitter um i, I check those regularly so if you're interested about micro games or how to get into professional wargaming uh, absolutely reach out i'm all about you know extending the pipeline for new wargamers um bringing again more people to the game table always always um, let's increase the diversity of thought increase the diversity of play it's going to make better war games both both professionally and commercially and i'm, I'm super passionate about that fantastic uh so everybody should go follow betsy i can be found anywhere online as beyond solitaire uh but betsy thank you so much for coming on it's been such a delight to talk to it's you a and blast I'm, thank I'm you super looking forward to stuff that's coming out from you absolutely thank you so much i appreciate it all right everybody uh please like subscribe comment ask questions and most of all happy gaming